This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we explore affect theory in comparative education. So I think of affect theory in terms of four different themes. All of the the intensity of encounters, assemblage, meaning making, they're not permanent. They're not, uh, you know, they're not set in stone. Uh, They occur over short durations. They recombine in different ways. But a healthy respect for contingency in terms of our policymaking and our actions and our uh, educational procedures is really, really useful and is quite important. So those are the four aspects of ethic theory that I uh, embrace in, in this work. With me is Irv Epstein the Ben and Susan Rhodes Professor of Peace and Social Justice at Illinois Wesleyan University, where he chairs the Department of Educational Studies and directs the Center for Human Rights and Social Justice. Irv's new book is called Affect Theory and Comparative Education Discourse, which was published in Bloomsbury's New Directions in Comparative Education book series, which Irv co-edits. The conceit of this book is to argue that in some ways they seek alternatives because they are fearful that their basic needs, uh, existential questions which they confront, are not being met by the school system. And in some ways they react uh, more forcefully and uh, reject educational practice uh, totalistically and uh, confront it openly. And so the conceit of this book is to look at case studies of what I call fear uh, and what I call loathing. Irv Epstein, welcome back to Fresh Ed. Thank you. So I want to jump right into perhaps a very large question, but uh, by way of context for the, the conversation we're going to have going forward. And that's about particular ideological and hegemonic tendencies in the field of comparative education. How do you see some of these ideologies and hegemonic tendencies in our field? So let me start by looking at some of the ideological aspects and then talking about hegemonic tendencies. I guess I would say with regard to uh, ideological issues, and uh, this has been commented upon by many in the past, so it's not all new, but uh, in the book, I look at uh, a number of different areas, uh, including policy studies, uh, development studies, international development studies, uh, tensions within progressive education, educational modernism, and then look at issues of hegemony. So with regard to the policy studies literature, you know, policy studies, at least in North America, uh, originated as a result of people during World War II trying to depoliticize uh, the nature of decision-making and policy formation. And that led to a uh, positivism uh, or an embrace of positivism, which was uh, relevant after World War II during the Cold War. And so we see within policy studies an embrace of rational choice theory, and then generally positivism. Education, as uh, other public uh, uh, policy issues, was seen as a public good, but not having to prove itself as such. And that pretty much has marked the nature of policy studies since then. 
Uh, with regard to international development studies, again, the, the Cold War influences, both with regard to the international institutions which were created, including the World Bank and others, that really served to maintain uh, North American and Western dominance of the world economy in the 50s, uh, late 40s and 50s, as well as uh, Cold War influences with regard to oh, the uh, contestation for uh, support against the Soviet Union, and therefore you have to look at human capital theory, uh, structural functionalism, and modernization theory within that context. And then in the 60s and 70s, uh, with regard to the international development uh, literature, conflict theory evolves, particularly dependency theory, where structural inequality is understood and, uh, and mentioned and noted. You also have humanist alternatives, including Frarian pedagogy, which embraced uh, liberation theology, and more recently, the capabilities approach of Nussbaum and Sen, uh, which is more of a kind of philosophical liberalism. So you have these kinds of different ideological trends, but they don't seem to really reconcile too well with one another, both within those two areas. And then you have basic conflicts within progressive education uh, from its start and its inability to reconcile uh, humanistic uh, perspectives with ones which are more behaviorist, uh, an emphasis on measurement and accountability, and then the conflict between the individualism of the child-centered approach as opposed to uh, social approaches toward pedagogy. So in all of those areas, I would argue that uh, comparative education has pretty much uh, cannibalized some of the theories without really reconciling them or really creating its own uh, ethos. So what would be some of these hegemonic tendencies that you see then? By hegemonic tendency is really my way is the only way, right? Uh, and so what we see, and that's particularly with regard to overall a sense of educational modernism, we view things such as the graded curriculum or competition as an indication of success, uh, importance of an age-based curriculum, hierarchy and specialization are as characteristics of educational systems as all being uncontested. And with regard to the other ideological approaches, there seems to be a sense that education is generically public good, uh, that regardless of the problems of education, if it is fixed or if policies are made to work, then that will be a good thing and a useful thing. And what that does not account for uh, are the is the possibility that instead of being inclusive, these policies actually are exclusive. And instead of um, being creative, they are uh, not only exclusionary, but also uh, categorize and rigidify uh, ways of looking at the world and ways of approaching uh, important policies, practices, and issues. So what would be an example of, you know, such a policy that is exclusive in your mind and all those other things that, you know, the educational modernism and these sort of ideological debates within the field of education have, have 
resulted in? Well, we would say, for instance, that uh, education is a solution. It's a solution to poverty. It's a solution to health. It's a solution to, you know, well-being. And we see that in individualist terms, right? You work hard, you do well, your performance reflects your ability and talent, it's meritorious, and therefore you're rewarded as a result, society benefits. Well, for many people, just the opposite is the case. Education is destructive. It's destructive of personal sense of self-worth. If you're told why you fail, what does that mean in terms of what education is saying about who you are, what your identity is? Uh, what does it mean when you're schooled in a language that's not your own, where religious preference is uh, ignored, where community really is not valued? So what is valued as a result of receiving your education is leaving the community, going away, right, for personal benefit. So those are some of the areas that I think, you know, where we really do not come to terms with uh, some of the tensions and issues that people in their day-to-day -day lives experience and confront with regard to educational provision. So then how do some of these, you know, these people that aren't necessarily making up the, the policies and practices or conducting the research in some you know, educational modernist way. How do these sort of everyday people generally respond to such modernist ideas? So uh, the conceit of this book is to argue that um, in some ways they seek alternatives because they are fearful that their basic needs and uh, existential questions which they confront are not being met by the school system. And in some ways, they react uh, more forcefully and uh, reject educational practice t uh, totalistically and uh, confront it uh, openly. And so the conceit of this book is to uh, look at case studies of what I call fear uh, and what I call loathing. And the fear and loathing is, you know, uh, taken from Hunter Thompson's work. Hunter S. Thompson was the American journalist of the 60s, uh, famous for in, injecting himself into his stories and into his journalistic accounts, decrying the notion of distance and objectivity in terms of reporting. But in his books, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail and other works, he tried to come to terms with popular sentiment that really was not being reported at the time. And so uh, this work is an attempt to uh, borrow from that framework and look at ways in which some of these visceral feelings are just not understood or not necessarily embraced by policymakers. So what would be some examples of, of, of fear that you see that you could point to? So in the book, I uh, look at three examples of fear. One, I look at uh, memorialization of mass atrocity in Chile uh, in the aftermath of the Pinochet dictatorship. And I look at efforts to memorialize and to come to terms and to remember that era, uh, which go far beyond what 
is uh, offered in the schools. And because what's offered in the schools is so limited and so insufficient, you have these other options uh, for different memorials and attempts to come to terms with the past. Uh, not all of them are successful, but at the same time, there is this need to gravitate away from uh, the school system because it's, it's so insufficient. And then a second example I look at is the issue of aesthetics and education, particularly music. And I look at uh, examples uh, from uh, Venezuela, the El Sistema movement, which really created the notion of world youth orchestras, again, totally outside of the classroom. And then look at two examples from the United States. One, the Playing for Change Foundation, uh, which has created uh, music schools around the world through embracing through video uh, street musicians and international musicians coming together to perform uh, common music. And then the Blues Kids Foundation out of Chicago, a uh, retired substitute teacher creating music camps to promote the blues uh, in a number of different venues. All of these are examples of looking at educational endeavors outside of the formal schooling process. And then the third example that I give is the sport for development movement with particular respect to uh, Kenya and South Africa. And there, in that case, the embrace of club sports, particularly for football, uh, as opposed with lots of money being given uh, for a sports evangelist perspective that sports is going to create character development. It's going to help solve AIDS. It's going to help uh, with uh, racism and so on and so forth. Yet physical education is pretty much ignored or it's given a short shrift within the regular school system. Well, in all of these instances, it's not necessarily clear that there's evidence that these alternatives necessarily work, but there's a real strong faith that they do work or they will work or they are important. And I find that to be quite interesting. Right. So all of these people that basically might see the the downfall in different ways of, of public schooling have sought alternatives to sort of fill in these gaps and they believe that it's it's working. Um, so what about loathing? You know, the, the, it's sort of a, a slightly different take than fear. Fear perhaps helps people seek alternatives. Loathing sort of can create, you know, much different feelings uh, maybe more powerful feelings um, that can result in some pretty bad outcomes, really. So, what, you know, what sort of examples can you look at in terms of loathing these sort of modernist school policies and practices? So I give three examples. The first example is looking uh, generically at global school violence. And the argument that I'm making here is that schools themselves are violent places, uh, and, and do that looking at issues of bullying, uh, looking at issues of cyberbullying, looking at issues of teen suicide as a result of reactions and interactions within school walls, looking at uh, issues of corporal punishment. And so the school walls aren't necessarily protective in and of themselves. They don't acknowledge the uh, violence that goes on in everyday life that goes on that kids bring to them from their communities and families. Uh, they uh, promote hegemonic masculinity in ways that create violence. And 
you, so you see, in a sense, in, in part of this chapter, you see a, a sense that that schools themselves, as being becoming targets of active violence, are is a reaction to what they're doing or not doing for children initially. You also have a case when you look at higher education of schools really being associated with the state. And the state as a political actor obviously is not neutral, but the efforts to take over universities, to uh, have military uh, take over student dorms, to uh, as well as to destroy the universities themselves and to attack scholars, teachers, students. All of that says something about the way in which any legitimacy for the higher education institution is sort of rejected uh, as conflict with the state ensues. So that's one example. And then the second example that I look at is global youth protest, which I've written about before, but go back and look at the ways in which um, in different settings, youth you know, take grievance, which is really uh, devoted to their own educational and higher educational experiences terms of affordability, unemployment, lack of affordability, gross unemployment, and unfairness with regard to uh, issues of admission and so on and so forth, and allow that to really tackle not only educational institutions, but government institutions more generally, a lack of faith in government institutions more generally. So what we consider there is this notion of identity salience, the fact that uh, students' own cause is then popularly adopted by uh, mass protest because people see grievance in terms of their own lives and the uh, own inability of the state or of the government to address their needs. And so we have with regard to student protest or youth protest a categorical rejection of uh, institutional policy. And then the third example that I give is what I call self-loathing, of the embrace of bibliometrics and the world-class university rankings system. And in that case, on our own, the university professoriate uh, really engage in this process of self-loathing, self-hatred by promoting these uh, statistics and promoting these metrics, which we know make no sense, and embracing a world rankings system that is not rationally defensible. We do that uh, because of our own feelings of inadequacy and uncertainty and the need for status and the need for uh, some kind of certainty with respect to uh, who we are and what we do. And um, what that does, it destroys sense of institutional mission and uniqueness, a sense of the creativity of the education process, of the teaching process, or creativity in terms of research. So those are the three examples of loathing that I give in the book. Uh, it's such a fascinating take of, of very diverse examples from all over the world that seemingly are disconnected but sort of fall under this framework of fear and loathing. But you actually go one step further. You, you, you begin to apply and think through these different examples using affect theory. And 
or aspects of affect theory. Now, I don't perhaps know everything about affect theory. So could you just give, you know, a quick overview of what are some of the important elements of affect theory, um, just for someone, you know, like myself, who doesn't necessarily know? So I think of affect theory in terms of four different themes or characteristics. Uh, the first is uh, intensity of encounter. And that really is taken from the work of um, Deleuze and Guattari and Brian Masumi. Um, and the notion there is that rather than thinking of the autonomous individual in terms of uh, making uh, choices in life, we uh, encounter our world uh, it, with a degree of intensity that and interconnectedness that really shapes everything that we do. And that those encounters are really underappreciated. Uh, so the second aspect of affect theory uh, involves assemblage. And assemblage means that we na naturally try to come together with uh, one another. We're social beings, and social creatures. And uh, the notion of assemblage is a, a notion not simply of, let's say, a strict notion of communitarianism, where the community is always well-defined or well-developed, but we come together and then we separate and then come together. But the notion of coming together uh, is uh, through assemblage is quite important. Um, a third aspect of affect theory that I embrace is meaning-making. And by meaning-making, we're talking about making connections, both in terms of actions and ideas. So I use the work of Margaret Weatherall, uh, who, as a social scientist, has decried the ways in which we divorce uh, notions of discourse from notions of policy uh, or policy-making, where we think that thought and action really uh, are not part of the same continuum. And then finally, the other aspect of uh, affect theory, which I think is important, is contingency. All of the, the intensity of encounters, assemblage, meaning-making, they're not permanent. They're not, uh, you know, they're not set in stone. Uh, they occur over short durations. They recombine in different ways. But a healthy respect for contingency in terms of our policy making and our actions and our uh, educational procedures is really, really useful and is quite important. So those are the four aspects of affect theory that I uh, embrace in, in this work. And why are they helpful to you, thinking through these examples, thinking through the modernist educational policies and practices? Well, I think they, so they ask us to be skeptical, first of all. And I think that they, they allow for certain things. So, for instance, uh, intensity of encounter challenges conventional notions of rationality. I would say assemblage challenges conventional notions of autonomy and individualism. As I was saying before, meaning-making challenges conventional notions of the separation of thought and action. And contingency challenges the notion of certainty and rigidity that becomes part of the classification process that so much characterizes uh, comparative education efforts. 
So I would say that, for instance, if we're talking about things such as inclusivity, affect theory has made a major contribution to post-humanism, particularly through the notion of intensity of encounter. It's important with regard to environmental awareness. The expansiveness of meaning-making leaves room for indigenous knowledge, which has often been rejected by conventional researchers uh, in lieu of pseudoscientific and social scientific paradigms. So in all of these cases, I think there is the promise for more inclusivity if these notions are adopted. And do you see this inclusivity in any of the examples that you brought in earlier on? Well, I guess I would say, so for instance, when we look at issues of uh, fear, right, for those three examples that we give, we're looking at existential questions, questions of memory and identity, questions of personal expression through the arts, and questions of disciplining the body through sport. And at the same time, when we look at conventional educational solutions, education, it, educational practice and policy is narrowing rather than expanding uh, the notion of, uh, of what's important, of what's relevant of what we should focus upon. So to the extent that people look for those solutions, some of which are educational in other realms, there is an an inclusivity there. And then when we look at the uh, issue of, you know, loathing, it seems to me that it presents the challenge to become more inclusive uh, because you know, when we look at, uh, you know, globally things that such as Trumpism or, you know, the Brexit popular uh, populism, coming to terms with educational elitism is something that we haven't really done well. And understanding the real harm that policies promote through lack of recognition of popular sentiment, of the ways in which people identify themselves is quite costly. So I think that these examples give some evidence for the importance of becoming more inclusive. Yeah, right. And using things like affect theory or elements of affect theory to help sort of, and I want to use the term unlock somehow, you know, I mean, we're unlocking sort of our understanding and, and pushing it in new ways through affect theory. It occurs to me, though, and I, and I would love your opinion on this, you know, is there an element or are you fearful, to use that word, um, that some of these ideas in affect theory could become ideological, could become hegemonic, just like the very theories uh, and practices of, you know, modernist education uh, that you're critiquing now? Yes, of course. So let's uh, unpack this a little bit. So affect theory... It, it arrives from cultural studies. It's Eurocentric. One could argue that it's no better than other social science theories that, uh, and the prospect of imposing these notions, let's say, on the global south or on other uh, uh, thought traditions is there. But if one did so without, one would have to do so without recognizing the importance of contingency, without reflecting upon the inclusive nature of these principles. So to the extent that the principles, in fact, are inclusive or ask for 
levels of inclusivity, then I think they meet that uh, critique. Within affect theory, though, there's not simply one affect theory, and there are affect theoreticians who disagree and argue with one another. So, for example, many who really focus upon issues of intensity of encounter believe that intensity of encounter is true not simply for human interactions, but non-human interactions as well. Whereas those who believe in meaning-making are really looking at ideas with regard to human interaction. So you can argue as to what to emphasize, what not to emphasize. Early on, affect theoreticians embraced the work of Sylvia Tompkins and Paul Ekman, who really argued that emotions were generic, almost universal and fundamental. And more recently, neuroscientists argue that that, in fact, is not true. So there's a lot of argument that's going on within this field. Uh, there are contradictions within the field. But my hope is that by looking at these core themes, that they can sort of guide us with not necessar without necessarily embracing them reflexively without critique, but they can be inclusive in us, enough for us to move our field forward. Well, Irv Epstein, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It's a really fascinating topic. You know, I think affect theory or the different aspects of affect theory really do push our field in new directions and hopefully get us beyond the whole looking for best practices. Thank you. Irv Epstein is a professor at Illinois Wesleyan University. His latest book is entitled Affect Theory and Comparative Education Discourse. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax-deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.